Well, good morning again, Harvest. I didn't introduce myself earlier, but for those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Steve Winstead, and I'm an associate pastor here at Harvest, and it really is a a joy, an honor, and a privilege to get to be here with you. I moved to Memphis approximately 15 years ago from the great state of Kentucky, and I moved to Memphis to take a position as a youth pastor. I I was really excited about moving here because the church I was coming to work in was a large church and the youth ministry had been a large, influential youth ministry, yet at the time it was struggling greatly. So for me, in some ways being in my mid-twenties, I felt like I had arrived, like, like I had made it. I was a year out of seminary and during my time in seminary, I worked as a youth pastor and really felt the Lord laying on my heart to be in youth ministry for a season. So moving to Memphis was really a a, a dream, and I was excited. Well, I quickly got to work to uh, help revitalize this youth ministry, and I began to run the play that so many people were teaching in the day. I'd been to lots of youth conferences and read youth ministry books and uh, began to implement a plan that all the experts were saying you should do which basically it boiled down to this. It was a highly attractional youth ministry. Make it where youth want to come here. Make it where they want to be here. So have lots of events. Have lots of activities. Make it very entertainment feeling where where youth come, they feel like there's anything else they would be doing. It it almost feels a little bit like the world. So I began to implement that plan and that play. About a year and a half into it, in my soul, I knew something was amiss. Oh, you, you, you could have looked at the youth ministry and outwardly, the, the plan and play that we had implemented was working. Youth were coming. Numbers were growing. There was lots of activity going on. But when I really looked at what was happening in the lives of the youth, I realized there was little transformation. That not too many youth were beginning to look a lot more like Jesus And when I was honest with myself, I knew that my life wasn't looking a whole lot more like Jesus. Oh, sure, I could could put up a good facade on the outward. I knew the language. I knew what to say. And I could go through the motions. But inwardly, I was afraid someone would discover that my walk with Jesus wasn't where it needed to be. Well, in a moment of, of desperation, I knew that something had to change. Either I needed to change my vocation and go do something different, or I needed to change how I was doing what I was doing. So I put up my hand for help. I reached out and said, help, I need some help. And I called the godliest man I could think of. A guy who when I looked at his life, I saw Jesus. When I heard him talk to people, His conversation was always filled with grace and compassion. And as he talked, I saw a Christ-like nature and character in this man. And I saw how he treated his family and how he talked to them. And I thought, if I could be like him, if I could just be a little bit more like this guy, then I think I could do this. So I reached out to a guy named Jay Harville. He's in the insurance business here in Memphis. The godliest man I knew. And I said, hey, I, I just need some help. I need, I need somebody to help me. And he said, you know what, um, let me think about it. And a couple days later, he called me back and said, you know, I've got a young family and I'm busy, but if you will come once a week and meet me for lunch at my office, we can get together. So for the next two years, I met with Jay every Thursday that we could make it work. I was at his office 
talking life, one-on-one. He was able, I was, I was able to, to bear my soul and my struggles and my pains and my hurts and my fears. And God worked through that relationship, not only to transform me, but to begin to transform the lives of those around me because he was changing me. And as I led this youth ministry, I began to change what I was doing and how I was doing it. Well, after about two years of that, I began to meet with another guy, a guy named Soup Campbell. You've heard Kenan talk a lot about Soup, and Kenan started meeting with Soup, and about a week later, I jumped in and started meeting with Soup as well. And what I learned from Soup was this. What Jay had done in my life was discipleship. He had, he had loved me and helped me become more like Jesus because don't miss this. The ultimate goal of discipleship is for people to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Well, as Kenan mentioned earlier, we're starting a series today called Disciple Maker. We actually debated what to call this series. We said maybe we should call it Disciple Making or Discipleship or maybe Disciple or even Mathetusitas, the word for disciple making, and confuse everybody. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, we decided we want to call it disciple maker for this reason. Because we believe every single follower of Jesus Christ should become a disciple maker. That that was his plan, that we don't merely become a disciple, but at the end of the day, we become a disciple who makes more disciples. So as we begin this series... It's a six-week series, as Kenan mentioned. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, uh, for being a God who is living and active. God, you meet us where we are. You know our hurts, our pains, our joys, our fears, the things that we don't want oftentimes anybody else to know, the things we think if they really knew me. Lord, you know them. And you know that we need other people. So, Lord, as we come here today, I know that people have burdens. They have cares, concerns, anxieties, so many things that would distract them from receiving what you have for them during this time. So help us to clear our hearts, clear our minds, and be open to the speaking of your Spirit, to hearing your Spirit speak to us through the truth of your Word, Lord. And and truly, unless you speak, Lord, I know that nothing of significance will be spoken. So, Lord, we want to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at three passages today. Really, what we're going to look at is three calls that Jesus really makes upon every single person. This is the calls of Jesus upon his followers. So, we're going to look at three incidences, three encounters of Jesus with his disciples, and in them, we're going to see how we're to live, who we're to be. So let's look. The first one is in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. John is the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. And and just so you know, we're going to spend more time on this John passage than we will the other two. So we'll spend a little bit more time here, but we'll start reading in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So here's John the Baptist. John's job was to pave the way for Jesus Christ. And a day earlier, he was with his disciples and he saw Jesus walk by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Now, what we can miss in that is that for a Jewish audience, for a, for a Jewish culture, the Lamb of God was a major idea. It started back with Abraham when they saw Abraham sacrifice a male lamb in place of Isaac. And then Moses sacrificed a lamb in place of the family. And then later, Moses would sacrifice a lamb every year for the sins of the nation. So everybody knew that a lamb was to be sacrificed for our transgressions. And when John says, there's the lamb of God, he's pointing to the sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ. Now, two of his disciples are standing there, and this is the second day in a row that they've heard this. I almost imagine the first time they heard it, they wanted to get up and run. But they may not have had the courage But but just imagine these two guys standing with John, and here's what happens in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said, what are you seeking? These two disciples of John the Baptist, they literally, physically start walking behind Jesus. They're literally following him at this point. And Jesus turns to them and asks them a question. It's a little abrupt sounding. What are you seeking? What do you guys want? What are you looking for? And these guys, they, they know that when a rabbi talks, the, the way you spoke to a rabbi was if they ask you a question, you responded with a question. So I imagine they're trying to think of what, what question can we ask him back? We've got, we got to come up with something. And in verse 38, uh, or in verse, halfway through verse 38, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where, where are you staying? That's sort of the best they could come up with. Where are you staying? But here's what's going on. They're saying, we want to go with you. Can, can, can we come, come with you? Can we come see what's going on? And Jesus' response is beautiful. Look in verse 39. He said to them, simply, come and you will see. He didn't say, well, guys, if you want to come, you need to go back home and get some things and bring them with you. You need to change what you're doing. You need to clean up your life. You need to get your act together before you come. You need to start living right before you come. He just says, come, and you will see. And that's the first call that we see Jesus give his disciples. It's simply a call. It's going to be here on the screen of come and see. A very beautiful thing. It it doesn't take much to come, but when you come, here's what's going to happen. You're going to see Jesus' love. You're going to see Jesus' mercy. You're going to see his justice. You're going to see his grace. You're going to see his truth. And as you see who he is, you're going to trust him and love him. But the first invitation is simply just come and see. And these guys are going to see that he truly is the Messiah. Now in the verses after this, we see one of the disciples, name was Andrew. And guess what Andrew's first response is? He runs to get his big brother Peter and say, we found him. We we found the one they've been talking about. We found the Messiah. You've got to come and see Peter. His name was Simon at the time and When Jesus meets him, it changes his name to Peter. Well, let's look at another encounter in verse 43, sticking with the the same one. Uh, It said, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and found Philip and said to him, Follow me. So Jesus comes, he finds another guy, invites another disciple to follow him. What do you think Philip's response is? It's sort of the same as Andrew's. It's to go tell somebody. When someone sees clearly who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, guess what they want to do? They want to go tell those that don't know about him. They want to go tell those who don't know he's the Messiah. 
You know, statistics say that within the first two years of a person trusting in Jesus, meaning they, they believe that he lived a life they, they could not live, died a death that he didn't deserve, but we did, and that he rose from the dead so that we could be made right with God, brought into right relationship. When they truly believe that, the first two years is when they share their faith the most. You know why? Because everybody they've been with doesn't know Jesus, and they want them to know him so badly, that's where they go to tell him. Now, I like Philip. Philip's a very likable disciple. He seems kind and loving, and his friend is Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel's very different from Philip. Nathaniel's the pessimist. He's a deep, critical thinker. He's a bit negative, always looks at the cup as, you know, half empty. So, Philip, just think about this guy. He's so excited. He runs up to his buddy Nathaniel, and in verse 45, he says, We have found him of whom the Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I, I, I just imagine Philip excited, can't wait to tell his friend. And look at what Nathaniel says. Verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You, you talk about raining on his parade. You talk about killing his excitement. This guy, Nathaniel, is just sort of that critical, downer-type personality. It's always thinking, ah, I can't, you're, you're just getting excited again. It can't happen. Now, what, would Philip, what could Philip do? He could say, well, you know, he, he, was just, he lived in Nazareth for a while, but he's really from Bethlehem. That was where he was born. And all the scriptures say that Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. So I bet this guy really is the Messiah. You should come check it out, Nathaniel. He doesn't give him any argument. He doesn't start to try to appeal to his reason and his logic. Instead, he says a simple statement. At the end of verse 46, Philip said to him, Come and see. Again, the exact same thing Jesus said the day before. Just come and see. That's all you got to do. Just be willing to come. And as you come, you're going to see Jesus for who he truly is. And when you see him, you're going to see his grace, his mercy, his love, and he's going to be irresistible when you truly see him. Now, Nathaniel comes to, he'll come to check out Jesus, this doubting, critical spirit. In verse 47, we're going to see what is a rather strange, bizarre conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel. And on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you crack underneath what's really going on in this conversation, you're going to see that Jesus was meeting Nathaniel right where he was. Jesus intersects and speaks to Nathaniel in a way that Nathaniel gets. Let's look at this. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus, uh, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the, the King of Israel. Now listen to that conversation. Here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. How do you know me? I saw you under the tree. You're Messiah. You're the king of Israel. Doesn't that seem a bit abrupt from a critical thinker? A guy who's always doubting, who's always questioning, who, who, who views the cup as half empty? Something's going on there. When Jesus said he saw him under the tree, he goes, well, you're the Messiah. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Let's look at what Jesus says next in verse 50. 
Jesus answered him, Because I said I saw you under the tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Now, Jesus clues us in. What did Jesus see Nathaniel doing under the tree? Well, many believe the tree, uh, the, the tree was obvious. It was, it was a place where people would come and meditate on Scripture. And many believe that's exactly what Nathaniel was doing. He was sitting under a tree, meditating, pondering Scripture. The question is, what was he pondering? What was Nathaniel thinking about under that tree? Because quite obviously, when Jesus said, I saw you under the tree, it struck a chord with Nathaniel. Let's look what Jesus says next, verse 51. Because he tells him he's going to see something greater than whatever he saw under the tree. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus gives a word picture here. What is that word picture? You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on Jesus. Anybody remember a passage where you see angels ascend and descend in Scripture? In the Old Testament... In the book of Genesis, in Genesis 28, there's this guy named Jacob. And Jacob's having a, a real, he's in a real stressful situation, real difficult situation. And he lays down to go to sleep, and he has a vision of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. He has a vision of angels ascending and descending on this ladder. Could Nathaniel have been thinking about that? Well, let's just hold on. You know, Nathaniel, the, the name, Jacob, it means this, deceiver. The name Jacob means deceiver. God will later change Jacob's name after he really struggles greatly. He changes it to wrestles with God or struggles with God. Now, let's just say Nathaniel was thinking about that. He was sitting under a tree pondering Jacob's ladder and thinking, what does this mean? What is that ladder? What could that ladder possibly mean? Go back to Jesus' greeting. Behold, here's an Israelite. What does Israelite mean? One who wrestles with God. Behold, here's one who wrestles with God, in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no Jacob. Nathaniel sitting under this tree pondering Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel, and Jesus comes and greets him and says, Here's one who's there's no deceit, who one who truly wrestles with God. Nathaniel thinks, How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw. I saw what you were thinking. I saw what was going on in your heart and your mind under that tree. And Nathaniel, when he recognizes that Jesus saw what was going on in his heart and his mind under that tree, he says, Rabbi. He didn't call him rabbi first time, but this time he does. Rabbi, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah. Jesus meets Nathanael right where he is. Right what was going on in his heart and his mind, Jesus intersects there. In fact, he tells him he's going to see something greater than that ladder. He's going to see the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Because you can't climb a ladder into heaven. There's only one way to come. And that's through the Son of Man. Jesus says, I am that ladder, essentially. I'm the way you're going to get in. So Jesus here, he speaks in a language that Nathaniel understands. That's what I want. If you got confused by any of that, I apologize. But if, what I want you to get is this. When Nathaniel approached Jesus 
Jesus met him where he was, with what was going on in his heart, in his mind, and it simply involved come and see. Let me ask you, have you come to see who Jesus is? Have you had that experience in your life where you've come and you've seen him and you've seen his grace, you've seen his mercy, and that you have trusted in him? This is a call to conversion. And here, this first group of disciples, they convert. They believe Jesus is Messiah. They trust him. Let me ask you, have you asked anybody else to come and see Jesus? Just simply come. And these guys' excitement, that's what they do. When they first see Jesus as Messiah, what do they run to do? Tell other people, come and see the Messiah. Come and see the king of the world. Well, let's look at the next encounter. Flip over to Mark. Mark chapter 1. It's just a few books back to the left. Mark chapter 1. We'll start in verse 16 and we'll read 16 and 18. It said, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. So Jesus sees Two of the disciples we saw in John chapter 1 said they were casting their nets into the sea for they were fishermen. That was their jobs. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I used to look at this text. Here are these guys, they're doing their job, they're working, they're fishermen. And somebody comes walking along the sea and says, hey, come follow me. And they go, well, sure, we'll leave our nets and follow you. That always appeared really strange. I mean, who does that? If somebody came by your place of business and said, hey, come follow me, you wouldn't just leave your business, pack it up and go. There's got to be something more going on here. Well, first, we saw this in their first encounter with Jesus, right? John chapter 1 is their first encounter recorded in Scripture. And they came to believe, to trust that he is the Messiah, And it's out of that that he says, follow me. Now, also at this time in Jewish culture, if you were a Jewish parent, you know what your dream for your child was? For them to become a rabbi. There was nothing greater than for your child to become a rabbi. And to be a rabbi was very difficult. At age five, you would send your kid to the synagogue school and they would begin to memorize the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. They would memorize every single word of it. If by age 10, you had sufficiently memorized every single word of it, understood it thoroughly, then you might get invited to go to the next stage. If you didn't show aptitude for that type of learning, they would tell you to go do something else. The next stage, you learn the art of question answer, logic, reason. Rabbi spoke in questions, so you would learn how to do that. The question might be like, what's two plus two? Well, the answer would be, if you were playing along, would be, what's 100 divided by 25? Something else showing that you knew the answer, that you could get there. And they learned that art. And then after that, if you made it far far enough, you could approach a rabbi. You might walk up behind him and approach him, and he would turn, and he would say, you can't be like me. Go ply your trade. Go be a fisherman. Go be a carpenter. Go do something else. But you can't be like me. You don't have the stuff. Or he might turn and say, hey, you can be like me. You you can become like me. Follow me and you'll become like me. And Jesus comes walking along these guys who obviously at some point someone had said, go ply your trade. And they were fishermen. They hadn't made the cut. And Jesus says, follow me. You guys can be like 
me. So you can see where they jumped on it. They go instantly, they follow him. And at this point, they already believed he was Messiah. But now they make him the priority in their entire life. He is the number one priority, the priority over all things, through all things. And they follow. But Jesus said something else. He said, follow me. And that's our second call that we see here. So we see come and see. And then we see follow me. He said, follow me. And I will make you. And now listen, this is the only thing Jesus said he was going to make them. Jesus only told these guys he was going to make them into one thing. He didn't say he was going to make them more spiritual. He didn't say he'd make them more holy. He didn't say he'd make them real good people. He didn't say, I'll make you wealthy. He didn't say, I'll make your life comfortable. He didn't say, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I almost wonder if they're in their excitement of being called by a rabbi if they haven't heard that. They just raced after him. But over the course of the next three and a half years, Jesus would build these men into fishers of men. As they were with him, Scripture says in Mark 3.14, that they were with him, and as they were with him for three years, they spent time observing, learning. They saw how he ministered. And learned to minister like him. They saw how he taught and learned to teach like him. They saw how he loved and learned to love like him. They saw how he interacted with people and learned to interact like he did. They learned from him, from being with him. And over time, they became more and more and more like Jesus. Let me ask you, are you following? Are you following Jesus? Because if you are, you're going to become more and more like him. The the fruit of the Spirit will begin to well up in your life as you become more and more Christ-like. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Jesus, God's strategy is disciple-making for helping people become like him. See, I couldn't do it on my own. God had to put a guy like Jay in my life where I look and go, he's a lot like more like Jesus than I am. He's not perfect, but he's more like Jesus than I am. I want what he's got. And I got to follow him. And then God placed a guy like soup in my life. And I said, man, he's more like Jesus than I am. I want to be like him. And God shaped me through those. That's how, that's how God works. And he, Jesus shaped these men through a process called discipleship. Well, let's look at the third call. If you'll just flip back one page, probably, in your Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. And it says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This passage is commonly called the Great Commission. I've heard some people refer to it as the Great Omission because Within the church, within the body of Christ, we've sort of forgotten this. We, we've, we've left this behind. This was Jesus' final words recorded in the book of Matthew to his followers. He has lived a sinless life that we could not live, died a death that he didn't deserve but we did, rose from the dead, and he's been on earth back again 40 years, and he tells his disciples these final words. He tells them, first off, all authority has been given to me. Now, 
Jesus says he has all authority. Do you believe that? Oh, when you look around our world, it appears crazy. Planes getting shot down, chaos happening. You go, how can Jesus have authority? Oh, he fully has authority. The enemy's a defeated enemy, Satan. But that victory hadn't been fully claimed until Jesus returns. So until that happens, we'll see chaos, we'll see death, we'll see destruction until Jesus comes back and claims fully the victory he won upon the cross. But here's what he's telling them. Hey, I've got authority over everything. And in light of me having authority, here's what you're to do. Go make disciples. This text, the the imperative or uh, some like to say the command of this text is to go make disciples with the full weight of the emphasis being upon make disciples. Now we are to go make disciples. So the, the third command is or the third calling that Jesus has on his disciples is go make. Go make disciples. That's what they're to do. And then he tells them how. Tells them where of all nations. He tells them how. He says baptizing them. And when is a person baptized? Well, they trust in Jesus. They believe he's the way, the truth, and the life. They are born again. And as an outward expression of what's happened inwardly, they're baptized. Baptism doesn't save a person. It's just an outward sign of the fact of what's happened in their life. So he said, baptize them, meaning go share the truth. Tell them to come and see me for who I am. And as they believe and as they trust, baptize them. And then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. We could could probably do a two or three year sermon series on everything Jesus commanded the disciples to do. It took a while. It took him three years with these guys, teaching them, training them, for them to reach this point of obedience. After this command, Jesus says he's going to be with them. Always. Wherever you go, he's with them. As you're making disciples, guess who's with you? Jesus. Guess who has all authority? Jesus. So is it up to us? We've just got to be obedient. Now, after this, there's no, uh, I've often said there's no verse 21. You would expect Peter, after this, to go, Hey, Jesus, how do we make disciples? He didn't ask that question, does he? Why is it? Because they knew exactly how to make disciples because he had done that in their life. There was no question. There's no need for a Q&A. They get it. They get it. So here was Jesus' callings. Here's his plan. First, come and see. Simple invitation. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to do anything different. Simply come and see clearly who he is, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a death he didn't deserve, that he has, lives a life, even today, through his followers, that he is perfect, that he is holy, that you can trust in him, that he is sufficient to save the entire world, all who will believe. But it just starts with come and see. Are you inviting anybody to come and see him? And then he says, follow me. Just simply start to follow. And as you follow Jesus, he's going to make you into something. Let me ask you, are you following? Are are you following Jesus? Do you have anyone in your life who's a little further down their relationship with Jesus so you can say, I'll follow them and the Christ I see in them? And then out of that, I would follow me. He says, now that you've been following me, you go do the same. You go and make more disciples, inviting them to come and see and to follow Jesus 
and then telling them to go make more disciples. And it goes on and on. That's his strategy. That's his plan. See, when, when I started in youth ministry, I was following a lot of plans that, that, that had scripture behind them that weren't evil, wicked plans. They were just plans that were short of the plan that Jesus had really laid out, which was a simple plan to go make disciples. That's what we're to be about. And throughout this series, that's what we're going to talk about. And, and I didn't spend much time on the Great Commission. Kenan actually preached on that on October 20th. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here on October 20th, a part of our body, I know many of you weren't at that time, go back this week and listen to that sermon. We'll send it out in an email where you can listen to more fully grasp that last part of the Great Commission. But, but as we close, I just want to close with an illustration I often used internationally. Uh, God's give me the good fortune of getting to travel around the world quite a bit, and I've realized people around the world are uh, more visual learners. They learn better by seeing and experiencing, and a lot of us do the same. I've got a, uh, a group of bottles here. Pretty simple. There's empty bottles. And I've got a bucket. Now, if I want to fill those bottles up with water, and I've got my bucket, let's just imagine my bucket's full of water, what's the best way to do that? Well, you just tell me what you think of my plan. Here it is. I'm going to fill those buckets up with water, and I'm going to throw the water on them. Do you think they're full? Does, it, does anybody think I just filled those buckets up? No, I see the devotees shaking their head. They know. No, they're not full. Well, what about this? Throw it on there again and again and again. You think they're full now? What do I need to do to fill those bottles up? What do I need to do? Need to get a little closer, right? What if I get closer? What about this? Is that going to work? I'll just keep doing that, filling those bottles up. If I do that, I'll probably knock them over. They'll be shooting everywhere, but they'll, they won't really ever get full. It'll take a long time, right? If I really want to fill these up, what I got to do? I got to slow down. I got to get up close and take time to gently, slowly fill these bottles up. And as one bottle becomes full, what can I do? It can begin to fill up another bottle. But it takes time. It, it, it's never going to happen if I just keep doing this, or if it does, it's just sort of a miraculous thing that the bottle got filled up. You see, in much of the church in our country, this has been our primary strategy. Keep throwing water. Keep throwing water. Keep throwing water. Jesus preached sermons, and they're vital. <laughs> sermons are so important. I think they're uh, one of the more important parts of what we do here. Maybe the most important. But they'll never fill those bottles up. They won't fill those bottles up. You'll leave here and probably forget much of what, it, of what I've said. That's what statistics say. You'll leave a sermon. You'll judge it by whether you liked it or how it made you feel. And then you'll leave and forget everything that was said just about You can ask somebody, what did your preacher preach on this Sunday? And they'll say, eh, the Bible. They'll never fill those up. What happens? It's got to take someone taking time to get up close, take their time and fill those up. That's why on our banners it says we are a gospel-centered, or gospel-driven, I should say, gospel-driven, disciple-making church. Because we realize we can come here, you can come here week after week, and we can preach, preach, worship, 
but you'll never fully become transformed into the image of Jesus Christ the way that he wants you to be until discipleship starts happening in your life. Until there's someone that is a little further down the road than you that's investing in you and until you start to turn around and say, God, who can I invest in? And you start to take part in this process. Well, over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about discipleship. And we pray that our congregation will be a congregation filled with disciple makers. People who are growing in Christ's likeness and helping others grow in Christ's likeness. That's our hope and prayer. So over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about that. And at the end of the six weeks, Kenan's going to give some clear avenues where if you're sitting here going, man, I'm not involved in this. I'm not making disciples. I've I've never been discipled. I, I need help. Where you can raise your hand and go, I need help. And we'll give you some avenues prayerfully to begin to get that help. Well, we're about to take communion And as we take communion, it's a great time for you to ponder, where are you in this? Have you come and seen Jesus? Are you following him? Are you becoming more like Jesus? And now have you turned and gone and begun to make disciples? Let's pray. God, I do thank you that uh, you are living and active. And that your word does not go void. Your word will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. But Lord... Your word also lives in and through your saints, in and through your followers, and we need each other. So, Lord, I pray that Harvest Church will be a church that brings glory to your name by being a disciple-making church driven by the gospel, but that we would make disciples. Lord, I pray that we would understand this and see this clearly and that we would follow you, that we would become more like Jesus. And, Lord, now as we come to take communion, to remember the body and blood that you broke for us. I pray that we would reflect on our lives and where we've allowed the cares of this world maybe to keep us from being involved in this. Lord, we love you and we know that Jesus is sufficient. It's in his name we pray. Amen.